Impermanence, Death, and the Beauty of the Moment. I'm very happy to give that talk tonight, and I'm also quite nervous, since I've never done this before. I'm sure you'll be patient. Since um, all of you are so much experts of what we're doing here, I thought I'd speak about something that's slightly different <laughs> from what we're doing here. It's um, the reflection on impermanence and death, the way the Tibetan teachers teach it. It's uh, very important for them. In uh, many years I've been studying with Tibetans, they made me aware how, of how important it was for them because whatever they're going to teach, that's what they're going to teach first and they do it again and again and again. And uh, with my own teacher, Geshe Rapton, I get really tired of listening to it for a while. But now I'm really glad that he kept on talking about it all the time. Also, the Ayang Rinpoche, the Lama who has been sent to the West to teach the Poa meditation, which is um, a, me a tantric method of transference of consciousness, he once said that for him, the Tantra was the most sublime method he knew, but much more important than Tantra for him was that one would generate the compassion for all sentient beings. And he said, still more important, it's to spend a lot of time thinking about impermanence and about one's own death. It's sort of the foundation of all spiritual growth, the fact that um, life is very fleeting and that each and every one of us ultimately has to face up to the moment of death. There's an interesting phenomena among some of us Westerners when we hear thinking and contemplating about impermanence and death, we think it's sort of negative or pessimistic or even morbid. And some people get resistant or fearful to it and even angry sometimes. For a long time, I myself didn't like it very much. I listened to it and I thought it was interesting, but I didn't really want to think about it too much. And it's quite amazing if you think that a friend of mine wrote me a letter saying that she had the opportunity to watch the birth of a child and she wrote how touching and how, um, how moving that experience had been for her. And I'm sure Everyone would be very touched and moved by that kind of experience. And yet, why is it then that we're sometimes so resistant to open to facts that 
are facts of the same life process, but it's just the other end of the, of the range. And maybe for those who want to, as we go along with this, you might want to watch our own reactions or blocks or moods that come up in connection with that. All of us are looking at impermanence at very subtle levels here. What this method is suggesting is that we're thinking about it, that we're thinking about it again and again and again, and sort of taste it and chew it and take it inside to the gut level. <coughs> Thinking is a real predominant activity in our lives. And uh, I have to say that for myself, even in retreat, it seems to play <laughs> quite a predominant role. And it's the way we are conditioned to perceive the world, it's conditioning how we relate to the world, how, how we interpret the world. And the way I see it is that Vipassana sort of deconditions us. But reflection, this one, or reflection in general, is like reconditioning the mind so that it gets used to think in ways that are more in harmony with the way things are, with the, the way the true nature of things really is. So in that sense, it can be complementary to the practice we're doing here. The Tibetans proceed quite systematically. They go step by step and they confront us with facts so that they cut us off from all possible escapes. And then finally sort of corner us so that we have to face up to the facts. They usually start by looking at the changing nature of the universe how they think about how whole world systems come into existence and then how they go on for some millions and life might develop. And they, they're destroyed again. And that cycle repeats itself again and again. It's like this gigantic stage for impermanence. And they think about the seasons, how they change, how plants sprout and grow and how they die again and how this is repeated again. And it's all to create a vivid context for looking at one's own life, at the impermanence in our own lives. When I was talking about this, I used to think, yeah, okay, I know. Everything's impermanent. And it took me a few years to realize that if I knew that something was impermanent, it didn't mean that I had really taken it in, that it was part of my being or of my way to, to live. So um, to make this useful or successful, they really have to 
go through it again and again. And then once we are trained to, to see impermanence, as we look around, we get the hints all over and we can see it all over constantly. And it's almost as if it would, would teach us after a while. So we'll start looking at our own life now the way they would do it. What happens once we're born? We grow up, we do the things we're doing, and then we get older. Where do we go? We're going to die. It's like a one-way traffic road. Ryokan says, Months pass, days pile up, like one intoxicated dream. An old man sighs. To see clearly that the direction in which our lives are going and to kind of get a certainty of where it's going to. They're giving three similes from the sutras to uh, think about so that we can let it sink into our systems. So again, if you wish to try. Just as an arrow shot by a skillful archer, as soon as he has pulled the string, does not wait but quickly reaches its target, so also is the life of humans. There is no moment of hesitation, no pausing, no way to turn around. This life, like the current of a great river, never turning back, it moves on. With every breath we take, with every step we make, we're drawing closer to death. Just as a prisoner being led to a place of execution, with every step comes near to death, so also is the life of humans. Milarepa likens, it, likens the approach of death to the shadow at sunset. As kids, we used to do this in the mountains. Like you stand on the hillside and wait until the sun goes behind the horizon and then the shadow starts coming up, and then it starts running uphill. And for a while you can escape, if you're fast, you can escape the shadow. But then sooner or later, it always catches up at some point. Then the question is raised, is there anyone we can think of that didn't have to die, or that might not have to die. And of course we know the answer. But we are asked to 
just think about it for a moment anyway. Let's, um, let's think of the Buddha. He's someone who has developed deepest insights and wisdom, and he developed the greatest powers that human beings possibly can develop. <coughs> it's gone. The great Mahasiddhas, Naropa, Tilopa, Milarepa, There are fascinating stories around their death. Like with Milarepa, it's said that when he passed away, after he had passed away, he was seen by many of his disciples simultaneously in many, many places where he had been meditating before. And the skies were filled with rainbows. And about Huineng, the sixth Chinese patriarch, it is said that after he died, his body never decayed for centuries. And yet they've all gone. I've seen in my own mind somehow hidden this kind of irrational hope or something that maybe if I just practice long enough or if I just get enlightened enough somehow, I'll. I'll get around it. It's not, uh, it's kind of absurd, but it's around some, sometimes. In a hundred years from now, each one of us in this room and every single person we know in this world will be gone. I can get a sense of that. So in that way we come to realize that there is no way out and as we do that type of reflection, we come to a certain kind of a, to certainty that we'll have to die. But it won't happen for a while, right? Nakajuna ex exclaimed, life is so fragile, more so than a bubble blown to and fro by the wind. How truly astonishing are those who think that after an outbreath they will surely breathe in again, or that they will awaken again after a night's sleep. There is not the slightest guarantee that we will. This is from the book Unforgettable Fire, about the bomb in Hiroshima. The morning started with a cloudless blue sky. I got on the streetcar of the Kabe line at about 8.10 a.m. The door was open and I was standing there. As I heard the starting bell ring, I saw a silver flash and I heard an explosion. 
everything was instantly covered with the pink and blue light. The light was hot and painful. Innumerable pieces of glass scattered and attacked me on my head, face and back. I was pushed from behind by a strong force and fell down. The next moment, everything went dark. It could happen to us right at this very moment. We just don't know. There's no certainty whatsoever. If this were to happen in three minutes from now, how would we like to lift them? I'd like to read what Don Juan has to say about that, to say about that. He says, you don't have time, my friend. That is the misfortune of human beings. Focus your attention on the link between you and your death without remorse or sadness or worrying. Focus your attention on the fact you don't have time and let your acts flow accordingly. Let each of your acts be your last battle on earth. Only under those conditions will your acts have their rightful power. Otherwise, there will be, for as long as you live, the acts of a timid man. Is it so terrible to be a timid man? No, it isn't if you're going to be immortal. But if you're going to die, there is no time for timidity, simply because timidity makes you cling to, to something that exists only in your thoughts. It soothes you while everything is at a lull. But then the awesome, mysterious world will open its mouth for you, as it will open for every one of us. And then you will realize that your sure ways were not sure at all. Being timid prevents us from examining and exploiting our lot as men. We don't have time. My friend Charles, who's sat the three months course with us, for a while, he worked in an emergency morgue of a city hospital. He's been, long, he's been with Tibetans for a long time. You can see why he was doing that. <laughs> they would bring in the bodies of people who had just died. And he said what was most astonishing for him wasn't so much that the people died. It was the way It was who they brought, that there was no rule how they would come in. He said in the morning maybe they would bring an old man who had died over in the hospital. It's okay. At 10 o'clock they would bring a young man. And he said it was astonishing. He looked healthy and strong and vigorous as he was lying there dead. He was only 25, maybe. 
And then at noon, they would bring a woman in her 40s with her handbag and her shopping bags. Obviously, she had just gone shopping, maybe to go home, make lunch, perhaps for her family, run over by a car. In the afternoon, they brought in two babies, twins. Maybe they had been too small to live, too weak. So we don't know when it's going to be. Yet we live as if it were forever. Why is that? Fear of pain or fear of the unknown. Maybe we're afraid of ultimate loneliness. And perhaps it's simply inconceivable. I think it, a really important part of doing this reflection is to, to watch and feel carefully where we're resisting to it and what keeps us from opening up to those facts. In my own case, when I look, it's very often my mind just makes some sort of a fog or a gray, kind of gray area around it. And it's almost like some kind of laziness that it looks, but it doesn't really want to try to look and then sort of rationalizes itself away from it. So, it's a good point to watch. And like any practice, it takes training. So we got clear that death is certain and it can come any time. And the next step to do in, in that practice is to visualize some supposed situation of one's own death. And again, that's for those who wish you can actually try doing it. It's the way it's often been taught. We imagine we're lying on our bed, we're afflicted with some deadly disease. All strength has left our bodies. We can't even sit up anymore. The food they bring is getting real tasteless. The face and skin becomes colorless and parched and gray. And we feel lots of pain and we feel very helpless. The medicine has no more effect on us. And the doctors stand around and whisper with friends and relatives and shake their heads and everybody gets very serious. And the breath becomes difficult and we know our time has come. And in this tradition, they go on describing the actual uh, experience of this. The elements that support the consciousness in our body lose power. And so when the earth element loses power, we lose the control 
and the ability to move our body. We can't move the limbs anymore. And there's an inner sign that looks like a mirage, like some hot air in the summer over a plane. And that's the sign that the next element, the water element, is going to fail. And as it does, our body and skin dries out and the eyes and the, all the liquids dry out. And there's supposed to be an experience of smokiness inside, a vision of smoke showing that the fire element is going to fail next. So as the fire element fails, the heat leaves our body. And the Tibetans say, if you watch that, it's an indication. The way the heat leaves the body is an indication of the next rebirth, whether it's going to be fortunate or unfortunate. Don't know about that. And there's a sign of fire spark or fireflies inside. And then the air element fails. So our breathing accelerates, inhalations become shallower, the exhalation gets longer, until finally our breath stops after a long exhalation. And we're seeing a motionless dim light. At this point, we'll, de we'll be declared dead now. And to this point, thinking and emotional processes were still going on. So if we had a lot of attachment, there would be a lot of fear. And if we were to have some equanimity and balance, there might be more peace. Then it's said that the mind moves through a number of other experiences and then finally faints. And after that, it goes through the experience of the clear light of death which is something that the very developed Tibetan yogis used when they do um, psychic heat meditation and clear light meditation. They actually induce the process of dying in themselves so that they get to the experience of the clear light, which is said to be an extremely subtle consciousness free of all um, conceptualization and emotions. And it's with that kind of consciousness that they investigate the true nature of things and develop towards complete Buddhahood. That's the reason why they know quite much about the actual process of dying. But for most of us who are not uh, highly trained yogis of that method, we won't even know that the clear light appears. And then after that, the consciousness will leave the body and take rebirth. And throughout this, we're completely helpless. And the only power that decides what's going to happen to us is the power of karma, which means it's the way we have been living our lives up to the point of dying. And so this leads to, to the question, why, why would you do that kind of reflection? Why bother? What good it is? What good is it? So for me, the first question is maybe more, why is it the problem to live up in a, to, to live in a way closed up to the actual facts of life? 
and it seems that if we close our hearts to the fear and the terror of this life, our hearts will also be closed for the joys and the wonderments and the mystery of this life. Our lives will have no depth, will be comfortably numb. If we choose to develop that kind of awareness, there's a whole range of helpful and powerful qualities that are developed and that emerge. I want to just mention a few of them. Like in traditional Buddhism, they use the fear that might come from that awareness as a skillful means to get ourselves into practice, to take refuge, to take great care with our actions of body, of speech, and of thought. And uh, the Tibetans use that a lot, actually. And also the Burmese use fear a lot as a skillful mean, as many of you will find out when Upandita will be here this summer. And as Sharon once mentioned, when the Tibetans do a long retreat, Every morning they use the contemplation of death to sort of motivate themselves to see that the time is precious and that it's not going to last very long. What else? Death is an advisor. Reading from Castaneda again. Death is our eternal companion, Don Juan said, with the most serious air. It is always to our left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you. It always will until the day it taps you. How can anyone feel so important when we know that death is stalking us, he asked. The thing to do when you're impatient, he proceeded, is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. I told him that I believed him and that he did not have to press the issue any further because I was terrified. <laughs> he replied, that the issue of our death was never pressed far enough. You're full of crap, he exclaimed. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Whenever you feel, as you always do, that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong, that nothing really matters outside its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. And thus you'll drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men that live their lives as if death will never tap them. So, 
we can use fears as skillful means. Death is an advisor. Some lamas, when they get up on, on their high seat to teach or give initiation or whatever they do, they snap their fingers. And that's done so that's supposed to bring up their awareness of their own death so that when they sit up there and teach, it cuts off all the pride they might have. It brings about insight. Understanding impermanence is part of the first step of the Eightfold Path of right understanding. If we start to see impermanence on all levels, we see the non-satisfactoriness of all things and the unsubstantiality. And in that way, we start living more in harmony and more in peace with things. It also brings energy. We will want to live our life more fully and completely since we realize that it's going to be over too soon. So we'll make the right effort and we'll be more impeccable. It brings detachment. Many things will lose importance for us. There'll be a shift of emphasis and we'll be much less preoccupied with having and getting and becoming and much more with caring for our way of being, our relationship to life, for how we live life. The list could go on and on. What's most interesting to me is that it brings us right into the present. It makes us very alive. It brings us a much deeper appreciation of this moment and of life. It awakens us to the beauty of now, to the exquisiteness of every moment. And we can start appreciating every moment no matter whether it's nice and pleasant or difficult and unpleasant and painful, just because it's life, just because it's being alive. It can make life in an ongoing celebration. I'd like to read something Ramdas said when he went to visit death row in San Quentin prison. He says there were about 35 men, and they all had been condemned to death. But he wasn't quite sure whether it was going to happen or not, since the Supreme, Federal Supreme Court had to make some decision or other on, on this. So Randa says, As I went up to each cell, there were only a very few who did not receive me openly, clearly, quietly, and consciously. The feeling I had was that I was visiting a monastery. For these men who are facing death have been pushed into a situation that has cut through their melodrama and they're right here. We sat together, 
sending out love and peace to all sentient beings in the universe. There was light pouring of these people's eyes. We got so open that I was really able to say, without any of us freaking out, I can't tell whether what's happened to you is a blessing or a curse, for there's very little chance that we would be sharing this highest space together otherwise. Personally, I've never been together with someone who's been, who was dying. But having been in India, I had a lot of opportunity to watch uh, people bring bodies and cremate them. And somehow for me, there was always a very high atmosphere there. And it seems to me that the reason for this was that there was a lot of surrender, a lot of being at one with whatever life was offering, whatever was happening in life. And thus there was a lot of peace in that. Another way of seeing it, it's a little like walking on a narrow path in the mountains along a dangerous and deep precipice. For those who have done that, they know it doesn't take any effort to be there. We're right there all along. In the same way, awareness of death gets us right here and the moment becomes fresh, new, and precious and alive. And from that openness and appreciation, joy and love can grow. And to close this, I'd like to read from Castaneda's book a little bit more. And it's not so much advice that he gives here, but it's somehow describing very beautifully the mood of someone who has lived his life very fully. This is the place where you will die, he said in a soft voice. I fidgeted nervously, changing positions, and he smiled. Every warrior has a place to die a place of his predilection which is soaked with unforgettable memories, where powerful events left their mark, a place where he has witnessed marvels, where secrets have been revealed to him, a place where he has taught his personal power. Finally, one day, when his time on earth is up and he feels the tap of his death on his left shoulder, his spirit which is always ready, flies to the place of his predilection, and there the warrior dances to his death. If a dying warrior has limited power, his dance is short. If his power is grandiose, his dance is magnificent. 
But regardless of whether his power is small or magnificent, Des must stop to witness his last stand on earth. Don Juan's words made me shiver. The quietness, the twilight, the magnificent scenery, all seemed to have been placed there as props for the image of a warrior's last dance of power. You will dance to your death here, on this hilltop, at the end of the day. And in your last dance you will tell of your struggle, of the battles you have won, and of those you have lost. You will tell of your joys and bewilderments upon encountering personal power. Your dance will tell about the secrets and about the marvels you have stored. And your death will sit here and watch you. The dying sun will glow on you without burning, as it has done today. The wind will be soft and mellow, and your hilltop will tremble. As you reach the end of your dance, you will look at the sun, for you will never see it again, in waking or in dreaming. And then your death will point to the south, to the vastness. For us, perhaps we aren't such great warriors yet. But what we, can, what we can do is to dance to our death from moment to moment to moment with love and with care gracefully. Thank you. Breaking the Chain, a traditional view of dependent origination and its practical applications. To say first that uh, when I wrote this talk, I got really into the writing it and into all details and put a lot of effort into it. And then when I tried to rehearse it, you know, to to give it, I realized that I couldn't let go of what I had written. And it took me about a week to uh, get that one together. <laughs> so I'll be mostly reading it and <laughs> I hope it's still some interest for you. Um, <laughs> I'll know about the next time. I'm sorry. The Buddha said Whoever sees dependent arising sees the truth. And whoever sees the truth sees dependent arising. There are two facts or characteristics of reality 
which together, it seems to me, are making up the crux and the essence of what the Buddha taught, the understanding of which is the key to seeing how we got stuck in suffering and bondage, and of how we can break the chain and be free. One is the law of dependent origination, and the other one is the fact that all beings and all things are empty of self or of any kind of inherent existence in Pali Anatta. Tonight I'd like to talk about dependent origination and perhaps towards the end just touch a little bit on the fact of emptiness of self. Dependent arising is actually a very complex and profound teaching and to squeeze it into an hour's discourse is quite impossible. So that I need to both simplify it, but also present a lot of condensed information in very little time. So for those who are not so familiar with the subject, please try to pay careful attention. And if you can't follow everything, never mind. It's a subject that takes some time and effort to understand. And I believe that it's very much worth all the effort that we can put into it. First, perhaps, on a, lev on a level of intellectual understanding, and then followed by the direct observation and seeing. And to help you remember, after the talk, I drew these diagrams here and made some copies for those who are interested. So don't worry if you think that you can't remember any of that. So first I would like to demonstrate the manner in which dependent origination is presented traditionally. And secondly, I try to show what the relevance of dependent origination is for us in meditation and in our life. And thirdly, I'd like to point out the connection between dependent origination, non-self, and freedom. I thought it would be nice for the first part to use the Tonka painting here to help illustrate how dependent origination are seen to be functioning traditionally. In doing all this, we accept for the time being some of the laws the Buddha taught and which we can't verify at this point, such as karma and rebirth. First, a few words on this so-called wheel of birth and death. The Buddha once was staying in Rajgiri, a town in northern India, in a place called the Bamboo Grove. One of his disciples, the great Moggallana, who was renowned for his extraordinary psychic powers, would often visit the various realms of existence, such as the hells, the spirit realms, and so forth. He would then talk about what he had seen there to people who were lazy and discouraged with practice and get them inspired again, awakening in them renunciation and new motivation for practice. The Buddha decided then that since Moggallana could not reach enough people by talking about it, a wheel should be painted, much like the one we have here. 
with the three root causes of suffering in the center, with ignorance shown as a pig, and greed shown as a rooster, and hatred shown as a snake. With the various realms of existence around, such as the hell realms, the realms of the ghosts, the realms of the animals, the humans, and the devas, or gods. And around it, it should show scenes that symbolize the twelve links of dependent origination. And the whole thing is held in the claws of a wrathful manifestation of impermanence. Outside the wheel, enlightened beings, that's beings who have an abandoned desire, hatred, and ignorance, such as Buddha, should be shown. This was to be depicted in the gateways of monasteries as instruction and reminder for monks, nuns, and all kinds of visitors. What is this chain of dependent origination? It is an, an explanation of how birth and death and suffering come into existence and how they are perpetuated. It's showing how the wheel of what's called samsara comes into existence and of course, most important of all, how we can be free of it. Traditionally, the explanation often starts with ignorance. Buddha said that, looking back over an infinite number of lifetimes, he could not see any point where there had not been any ignorance, or where ignorance had begun. What's meant by this ignorance? Ignorance is the factor of mind that darkens and distorts our perception and our view of reality of things in a way that is not in accordance with the fact, with actual reality. For example, we tend to look at the world, at things, and at ourselves as being of a somewhat permanent nature. Because we relate to the world through concepts such as house, car, person, I, me, others, and so forth. We tend to mistake the concept, which is a permanent thing, with the actual reality of that object, which is, as we all know, highly impermanent. Another example would be, we tend to believe or hope that objects, people, and situations are going to give us some lasting satisfaction some kind of stable peace, if only we can manipulate things so as to get them to behave the way we'd like them to. Since it is not really in the nature of things to behave the, the way we want them to, of course we get ourselves into a lot of trouble. Just consider for a moment the tremendous amount of pain and frustration that we're getting ourselves into it 
by doing this again and again on all levels. It's much like reaching out in the darkness to grasp a poisonous snake, thinking that it's the garden hose. To make things worse, we crystallize and solidify our misperceptions by projecting or imagining some sort of substantiality into all things, including a sense of self into our own being. Ignorance also means that we are ignoring the difference between wholesome and unwholesome actions and the fact that they cause karmic results to ripen. Much like being unaware of the fact that from the seed of a hot chili, no tree with sweet mangoes will grow. In that way, we're blind to the possibility of influencing the quality of our life in terms of suffering and happiness, and of the possibility of freedom altogether. These are only a few examples of what ignorance does in the mind. Rodney, in his talk last week, has given a much more detailed and sophisticated explanation of some of the workings of ignorance. Very appropriately, ignorance is symbolized in the painting here by a blind person approaching a precipice Mistaking the nature of things and not understanding the nature of our actions, we find ourselves in constant reaction to experience and to the world. Thus, we constantly create tendencies, habits, and karmic patterns in our minds. Some of these karmic intentions, reactions, and actions are like lines drawn into water. They disappear right away as they are drawn. Some stronger ones are like lines drawn into sand. And yet others are like lines or crevices chiseled into rock. It's mostly the latter that are referred to here. Intentions and actions that are strong enough to throw us into a new birth, what is called throwing karma. In the painting, these karmic tendencies or formative tendencies are symbolized by a potter. It's someone who is constantly busy creating new things. Both ignorance and formative tendencies here are seen as those of the past life. At the time of death, through their power, the consciousness is thrown into a new birth. Thus, at the moment of conception, a new rebirth consciousness arises, usually shown in the picture by a monkey jumping from a dead tree to another living tree. In this picture, it just shows a monkey that's jumping, symbolizing the consciousness jumping from one form of existence into another one, taking birth in any of this realms of existence according to karma. So through formative tendencies conditioned arises rebirth consciousness. 
It's the power of karmic action that's, that throws us, even though there is no one there who is reborn. It says, no doer of the deed is found, no one who ever reaps their fruits. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions all. At the same time, we need to remember just how powerful these karmic conditions are. As it says in another text, fire might become cold, the wind might be caught by a leash, sun and moon might fall down on earth, but the result of karma is infallible. With rebirth consciousness, we enter the resultant phase of the present life. Rebirth consciousness, having met the sperm and egg at conception, together will develop into a body-mind process, shown usually as two people in the same boat. For some reason, it seems to show three people in this picture. <laughs> From this, the, sense, the sixth sense is automatically raised. It's usually shown by a house with six senses. Maybe the painter didn't get the point exactly of the six senses, of the six windows of the house corresponding to the six senses. There's only about five or four. With the six senses present, there's bound to be contact. For contact between an object and its, its respective consciousness to arise, it takes a number of conditions. It takes an intact organ, such as, for example, the eye. An object, in this case a visual object, light, attention, and the corresponding consciousness. Similarly with all the other sense organs and their object and consciousnesses. If these conditions are present, contact is bound to arise whether I ask for it or not. Contact is symbolized here by two people embracing. As soon as there is contact of consciousness with any object, there is bound to be feeling. Feeling is the actual texture of our experience, so to speak. It's defined as that which experiences, or the experiencer, just as it is the knowing consciousness which knows, so it is the feeling which feels. It is not feeling in the sense of emotion here, but simply the three modes of, of receptive feeling, which is pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant feeling. On the painting, a person with an arrow stuck in the eye is shown. It points out in a somewhat dramatic manner that all feelings are ultimately dukkha or not satisfactory, unpleasant and neutral ones because they are suffering or at least are not pleasant, while pleasant ones have the nature to eventually pass away, like everything else in this world. It's here at this point, once feeling has arisen, that we enter again the active phase of the chain. Whenever pleasant feeling has arisen, 
most likely there will be wanting or desire arising as well. Similarly, when unpleasant feeling has arisen, dislike or aversion is likely to, to disappear, uh, to, to appear. Sorry. The wanting mind in Pali is called tanha or thirst, and it's symbolized by a person who is drinking, a thirsty person in this picture. Wanting escalates into reaching out, grasping and clinging, the next link in the chain. Similarly, dislike escalates into resisting and pushing away. It is shown here as a person, or sometimes as a monkey, reaching out for fruit on a tree. Grasping and clinging then escalate into action and becoming. No karma is created and we are ready at the time of death to jump to the next life again. Becoming is shown here as a woman pregnant with no future life. It might be useful at this point to remember again that it is not someone who is reborn after death with some entity to pass over. It is rather the continuity of the energy of our actions and tendency that causes a new birth to arise. With birth, a new future life starts pictured as a newborn baby. St starting with the moment of birth, aging begins, and thus the stage is set again for disease, decay, old age, death, and a lot of suffering. Shown here as a person carrying a corpse, or sometimes shown as a diseased old person walking near a graveyard. Once we die, we'll forget even the little bit of what we know, and thus more ignorance is bound to be there. In this manner, it's through our own ignorance, action and reaction, that we keep this circle of samsara going. The Buddha asked, which do you think is more, the flood of tears which weeping and wailing you have shed upon this long way, hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth, united with the undesired, separated from the desire, this or the waters of the four oceans? And he answered, Long have you suffered the death of father and mother, of sons, daughters, brothers and sisters. And whilst you are thus suffering, you have indeed shed more tears upon this long way than there is water in the four oceans. How is this possible? Inconceivable is the beginning of the samsara. Not to be discovered is any first beginning of beings who, obstructed by ignorance and ensnared by craving, are hurrying and hastening through this round of rebirth. And thus have you long undergone suffering, undergone torment, undergone misfortune, and filled the graveyards full. Truly long enough to be dissatisfied with all the forms of existence long enough to turn away and free ourselves from them all. 
It's a powerful statement. What can, what can be done about it? The chain can be reversed by replacing ignorance with insight and wisdom through the practice of awareness. Wisdom is the factor in the mind that allows for seeing and understanding things clearly the way they are. Just as a lamp instantly can dispel the darkness of eons, wisdom dispels the darkness of beginningless ignorance. The traditional formula runs like this. Like this. When ignorance ceases, no more karmic tendencies are created. Without karmic tendencies, no rebirth consciousness arises. Thus no mind-body process arises and no six senses appear. Without six senses, no contact. Without contact, no feelings. Without feeling, no wanting. And no grasping, clinging, and no becoming arise. Without becoming, no birth takes place. And decay, disease, old age, death, suffering, and grief all come to an end. About this state, the enlightened one said, this I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still nor being born nor dying. There is neither foothold nor development nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. Steadfast is the mind gain this deliverance. Some schools take this all very literally. Such enlightened beings will live a holy life and at death their mind stream will completely dissolve like a snowflake in the warm spring air. Some other schools take it as meaning that the defiled aggregates of grasping cease, but the purified continuum of such holy ones will go on manifesting the Dharma throughout the ages out of compassion for all suffering beings. Personally, I don't know about this. But I feel that what matters most for us is what we can learn from these teachings and what we can do about it right now in our meditation and in our life. It's important first to understand that samsara is not some outer condition, but is the state of our mind. It's our mind and our mind only. Buddhahood and the lowest health are both just its manifestation. The Tibetans give an example of samsara as being like a naked person carrying a bundle of thorn, thorns tied to the body. The thorns are the aggregates defiled with craving, grasping and so forth. The rope which binds them is the throwing karma. To be free from suffering that person has to cut the ropes of karma with the sword of awareness and wisdom.
how can this be done? There are many areas in our mind where we can bring awareness to in order to see clearly what is happening. I'll give a number of examples here. They are meant to give us some ideas or inspiration to take a careful look, to give a sense of the possibilities of the practical application of this teaching. To do that, we'll go through each link again. Ignorance. As we meditate, observing, feeling and investigating what's presenting itself, we can begin to see how the ignorance in our mind can create, create mistaken perception of reality. There's a whole variety of events that we might want to observe. We might want to observe how we mix up and mistake concepts with reality. We could, for example, pay attention to the sound of a bird. Call, call, as it arises. What happens immediately after? Is an image of a blackbird appearing? Does the word crow or the sound crow arise in the mind? Or we may hear squeak, squeak as we sit in the hall. What happens? Does a picture of a person walking into the hall come up? Or words? Or does that sound bare nakedly arise and disappear in our mind? Do we react? What's the reaction? Do we react to the bare squeak squeak? Or do we react to the concept, the idea about it? What's the difference between responding to bare sound and reacting to ideas about it? Do perhaps in one case like and dislike and judgment come in? Or does it just help us to make sure of who we are in case we had lost that sense for a moment? Again, if you are tuned to the bare squeak, we are in tune with the reality that is arising, changing, and disappearing again. If you are tuned into our idea about squeak, we relate to a permanent entity, a concept, which remains unchanging. An enormous difference, since one way of seeing is in harmony with reality, while the other way isn't. And thus it becomes obvious how we get into conflict with reality. And it's not that concepts are not useful. Their use only becomes a problem when we mistake them with actual reality. Let's look at another example of the functioning of ignorance. Assuming some desirable object arises in the mind, does our mind attribute the pleasantness to the object itself, or is it clear that the pleasantness often arises in our mind depending on the ways our mind is conditioned with regards to that object, perhaps conditioned through our past experiences with that object. The Tibetans use a word to describe what the mind does to such an object. 
it is putting on feathers to the object. It's making it up. It's beautifying it. And then the mind behaves as if it were an actual property of the object. Yet another way of ignorance to mistake reality and to cause disappointment and suffering when finally it turns out that the object doesn't have that quality of lasting pleasantness which the mind has been projecting onto it. Perhaps the most relevant process to look at is the way we relate to ourselves and experience in terms of identification, of duality, of inherent beingness. I'd like to go into this more at the end of the talk. Wherever we look and become clear of what's going on, it's the process of ignorance being replaced by awareness and wisdom. The way to break the chain and be free. For now, let's go on to the next link. Again, karmic or formative tendencies. Since ignorance causes us to misperceive reality, we are bound to find ourselves in constant conflict with that reality, simply because reality doesn't behave the way we expect it to. We react with likes and dislikes, which develop into habitual tendencies of holding and resisting. We're driven to perform all kinds of unskillful actions in the hope of being able to manipulate reality, to get it to conform to our needs and desires. If we are willing to bring awareness and light to that process of reactiveness, our attitude to life will change significantly. We will experience a greater sense of balance as the push-pull movement of the mind reduces itself and more spaciousness appears. We'll be looking at this again in more detail further down the chain. Now the next five links are of the resultant phase of the process. So we can simply observe that this process of reactive response has conditioned us into a certain pattern, personality or character on all levels, the physical, sensorial, psychological, mental and so forth. Another aspect we might want to observe here is the relationship of mind and body. We can watch, for example, how needs and desires in the mind cause intentions to arise, which in turn cause the body to move, to do certain things. Or we can watch how things that happen in the body, such as the sensation of hunger or pain, can move or influence the mind or its moods in many ways. If we take a very careful look, it can become quite apparent how the body and mind function in a mutual cause-effect relationship without someone doing it or someone that things happen to. We can further observe how upon contact the consciousness and its object arise together, forming an inseparable unity, having different aspects. One being the object, the other the knowing of the object. Observing this process closely, 
it becomes even more apparent that all of our experience, ourselves and the whole world, is made up of these two things, object and knowing, with no one outside these two to whom this refers. Incredibly fascinating things to watch. And we were speaking of boredom the other day in the group. In my own practice, I found that often I had the idea that first I have to get my practice together, my concentration, my awareness, and then I will investigate and look. It never happened because they never seemed together enough until the time I simply started looking. And the looking itself brought the interest and all the rest. Every single moment is worth of our full attention. As consciousness and its object arises, there will always, together with them, arise feeling. The venerable Mahagosananda, a Cambodian monk who visits here sometimes, speaks of Vedana or feeling as being the eater. What we do all life long is being busy providing food for our feelings, trying to feed it pleasant stuff. And whenever we don't succeed with that, feed it unpleasant stuff, still better than nothing. Anything is better than nothing. It's very crucial for us, if we are genuinely interested in freedom, to observe and learn to understand the nature of feeling, and to become very clear about our relationship to feeling. It might be worthwhile to spend some time in our meditation just noticing the three different kinds of feelings that arise. Just determining, determining from moment to moment whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling that arises. So as to actually get a clear sense of the constant presence of feeling and get familiar with its actual textures or flavors. Once some awareness of the different kinds of feelings is there, we'll start to be able to tune into the point where the mind reacts with desire or wanting as soon as there is a pleasant feeling. We'll see how it reacts with dislike as soon as there is unpleasant feeling. We might see how it stays diluted when neutral feeling prevails. This is really the key to freedom. If a strong awareness and wisdom is present at this point, the mind responds with balance and openness instead of contraction, of wanting, and of dislike. When there is that openness to just be there instead of reacting, then freedom is coming in. This is really working at the root of samsara. If you remain ignorant of that process, the mind tends to escalate the wanting into grasping and holding on. The dislike tends to escalate into resistance and pushing away. If that's the point where we become aware of what's going on, fine. We might catch ourselves the moment we're about to pull the trigger to shoot somebody, fine. We pull out our finger and then look backwards to see how we got there. 
what exactly was that feeling that made us react and then rush into action. A very helpful thing to do, to trace back and check out the point of contact with feeling. Any point where awareness is coming in is fine, even in the middle of an action. Once an action, mental, verbal or physical, is accomplished, we're bound to get back its result. Thus we're again in the resultant phase, birth, death, suffering, and more ignorance. If we reflect on, understand, and know by heart the points where we either tie ourselves into knots or loosen the knots, we'll be able to tune into these events as they occur in our experience, as we meditate, as we go along in daily life. I hope there's some energy left in people, as I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the third part, tying in the discovery of non-self. What ignorance also does is to create a sense of self, a sense of there being an entity, someone within the experience we have in ourselves. It further creates a sense of duality between me, myself, and other. And this creates the necessity for myself to acquire or avoid objects and beings that are separate from myself. Finally, it creates a sense of self in all objects, in it, that it attributes them with the substantiality, an independent way of existing from their own side. It's here that insight and wisdom are most profoundly liberating. As we begin to see deeper, we start to see what the Buddha meant when he said, Suppose a man who is not blind beheld the many bubbles of the Ganges as they drove along, and he watched them and carefully examined them. They would appear to him empty, unreal, and unsubstantial. In exactly the same way does the monk behold all material phenomena, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness, whether they be of past or the present or the future, far or near. And he watches them and examines them carefully. And after carefully examining them, they appear to him empty, void, and without the self. People sometimes ask, if there is no self, how can there be rebirth? It is only because there is no self that cause and effect and dependent origination can arise. It's very obvious, yet quite difficult to see. Perhaps it's easier to see if it, if it turn it around. To paraphrase the Dalai Lama, if phenomena were not empty of self, not empty of a substantial inherent nature, then it would not be possible for any changes to be brought about. 
if there were anything that existed in a substantial way, whatever its state might be, it would never change from that. When we speak of emptiness, it doesn't refer to an emptiness that is around or behind the phenomena and out of which they appear and into which they disappear again. It's rather so that emptiness on one hand and cause and effect of dependent arising on the other hand are like the two sides of one and the same coin. They exist mutually dependent on each other. The fact that the seed turns into a sprout while the seed totally disappears shows that there cannot be the slightest reality in terms of a substance, right? Yet the bamboo seed will give a bamboo sprout, not any other sprout, as the law of causation is incorruptible. Just as wholesome and unwholesome actions will give pleasant and unpleasant results, respectively. Avalokiteshvara says to Sariputra in the Heart Sutra, emptiness does not empty the form, and emptiness is not separate from form. The very form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. When there is awareness and spaciousness in the mind, experience seems to be more and more transparent. Just as a magician produces visible objects, such as horses, elephants, carts, and other things, which, though they appear, are not truly existent, so should you experience the whole of reality, says the Samadhi Sutra. When this is seen deeply, we come to realize that pain and pleasure, birth and death, bondage and freedom have only as much reality as the mind and its ignorance invest in them. From that perspective, though samsara appears to be existing, nothing has ever stirred from perfect stillness and samsara has never really started. Thus, there is freedom. This freedom begins with awareness and with mindfulness at this very moment, right now. Thank you. If anyone is interested in those uh, diagrams I drew, it's basically saying the same thing in a very condensed way. Please help yourself.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.